Today on Never Was a Gamer, I too am a historian of the War of the Lions, and I too disagree with popular opinion about who the main character should be. Welcome to Never Was a Gamer, the show where a late-blooming gamer makes up for lost time playing everyone else's formative games. I'm Michelle, and with me as always is the spouse I have installed on the throne as a dummy ruler to secure my path to greatness, Dimitri. I'll pretend I get that reference. (laughs) Listener, today I learned that Dimitri did not himself ever finish Final Fantasy Tactics. No, and I think I've disclosed that to you in the past. I may have forgotten. (laughs) Hi. Um, Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. As you can tell, we do have uh, a little bit of Final Fantasy Tactics to wrap up. Michelle definitely has some thoughts. So we're really here to do three things today. We're going to wrap up Final Fantasy Tactics, but then we're going to spend the majority of time wrapping up our 2021 in games, talking about games that we played in 2021 outside of the show. And then after that, we'll spend a few minutes talking about the future of the show. So we hope you'll stick around for all that. But for now, Michelle, the floor is yours. (laughs) I, it turns out, have a lot to say about the last act of this game. (laughs) I think it exemplifies, you know, a lot of what I have come to admire about this game and also the places where I think it absolutely just falls into a dog's breakfast mess. Um, And like, I love a mess. So let's just, let's get into this. First of all, this game is too long. I have literally nothing else to say about that, but it I think the level of attention to detail that it requires to like really get it on a deep level is simply not something that an average mortal can sustain over 100 hours of gameplay. I did end up this this game with a above 100 hours logged in it. So, no one can say I didn't do my best to engage with this thing. Yeah, and I mean for a person who is not rushing to play through it so they can record about it, it's, it's probably a slightly different experience where, you know, you can take your time. This might be something that you could have, you know, dipped in and out of over the course of three months, four months. I do think so. But I also think that, you know, playing over that kind of more relaxed timeline, like this is a, this is a game that really wants you to remember, you know, act one or two characters who appeared in one battle and not much else and will reappear in the final battles of the game and want you to feel like that means something. Like, I think that also is a structure that doesn't necessarily work if you're playing something gradually over like six months. I mean, depending on who you are. But I guess like, we just have to get into it about this ending. I, this ending is an outrageous affront to the very concept of balance in game difficulty. It is incredible. The The last series of battles, you know, sort of accelerates towards an end with a bunch of kind of short ones that just stack and sequence on top of each other leading into your sort of final classic final fantasy encounter with fighting the demon you know in an airship graveyard it's it's very final fantasy by the end um but along this way in this in this sort of final spiral into the last confrontation i the last like eight battles i i alternated between either 
like a lot of them are of the structure where you don't have to kill everybody. You just have to kill one main guy, which is sort of one of the two sets of objectives that this game frequently plays with. And I would alternate between either killing the main guy with like my first two hits and, you know, he would have like an entourage of monsters behind him who didn't even get a turn because we just like I hit him with Orlando and Melia Duel and it's over. So in those cases, it's like, okay, well, I guess I'm maybe overpowered and we're just accelerating at this point. But then I also would hit roadblocks where I just would absolutely get crushed like a bug over and over and over again. One of the one of the harder late game battles is this one where your terrain is bisected by a cavern. So you have to navigate getting sort of across this little across this ditch thing um, in order to be able to attack uh, the the guys on the other side, all of whom have quite long range attacks. And that one, I it probably took me 15 or 20 times and like a little bit of Googling to get past it. So I had this weird whiplash between like battles that felt so trivial that they almost felt like a waste of time at this point. And then just being absolutely annihilated and being like, am I going to have to quit this game at this late stage? Um, And I think it just by the end, I think a game with this much variability and that offers you this much choice and this much versatility with how you stack jobs, what characters you bring forward. I think it's just impossible for a game like this to know what kind of insane squad combo you have gotten yourself into at this point. So in some ways, I'm sympathetic to how hard it must be to program appropriately for for this kind of thing. But also the the lack of balance they ended up with is truly wild. Um, so what kind of team were you uh, were you playing with going into the end game? Did you ever well, so, get your Dark Knight? So no, I gave up on that because I was like, not even close to ma- you have to fully max out all the skills in like three or four classes with one character. Um, I was not going to get there. It would have been 15 to 20 more hours. And like, I have shit to do. So I gave up on on the Dark Knight and was kind of sad about that. I wish I had committed to it earlier. But again, it's the kind of thing you you don't know and can't know until you're late enough that you're like, okay, let me pop open a guide and see what I'm at risk of missing. So I didn't get my Dark Knight. And th- and this is this is sort of the counterpoint to to what I was just saying about the versatility of how you can build your squad. And I gestured at this a little bit in our last episode, but a lot of chapter four, the final act of this, is just them throwing new characters at you who are plot critical and who have these like relatively overpowered and unique and interesting starter classes that mean I ditched every like at some point, there's just there's no reason to use any other any of the other freaks I've been coddling this entire time. So like I end up with this with this party that is just the main story characters, all of whom I have met in like the last few hours of this hundred hour adventure. And that that feels a little weird to me. I, I sort of I I really liked the the part of this game where I had this one uh, non-story character who just happened to have super good stats, who I'd like trained up to a really versatile magic user, and who I was like starting to imagine a character behind. Um, and I just left her by the wayside because it just I, I I couldn't find the use case for her when I had so many other like strong hitters coming on late in the game. Yeah, do you think? Like, would you have preferred more of a Fire Emblem approach where 
everybody you're dealing with is a story character, like, and you have them all from the start, I guess. I guess you don't have them all from the start, but you have quite a few from the start. I think, you know, this is a game that's trying to have its cake and eat it too, and that is trying to give you the JRPG experience of building a party of meaningful named characters you care about, but then also because it's a tactics game and you kind of start out without a lot of those named characters, you need to get some, you know, kind of some grubs in there. But then you kind of grow to love your people you started with who who have no real bearing on the story. I, I do think it's caught between between those things. I think the real thing is that this game almost didn't expect me to take like the permadeath element as seriously as <laughs> I did. Mm. Like I think I think part of the reason it makes these these like non-story characters who are kind of disposable to be honest available to you at any time is that like if you keep wiping your your party and right. having like only three guys survive, it wants you to be able to get back up to a party status, which that does make sense structurally with the game. But I think I would rather them just have some sort of fail state or some sort of other like regulated thing where you can't just end up with this with this sprawl or at least get your whole team on board earlier. You know, I just felt like some of the late ones, especially Meliodul and to some extent Orlando, who were instantly became two of my permanent characters when I got them. I just didn't have enough time with them. Like I'm interested in these people. One Meliodul is the daughter of one of the lead uh, church clerics who's been taken over by a demon, and she's trying to come to terms with what has happened to the good man that she knew. That's a good story. Let it bre- let it let it out. Let her let her do that. You know, Orlando was framed for the murder of of the Duke that set off a lot of this war stuff. He's the father of the character who will end up being the historian at the start of the of the game. Like these are these are there's a meaningful thing in there that I just didn't get to I just didn't get to have any emotional response to because it just they sort of get some story when they join your party and then they're mute the rest of the time. So I guess, you know, you've been talking about the story in your opening, you kind of hinted at some of your feelings uh, on the story. And, you know, that's kind of a thing that we always want to take away from a Final Fantasy game. So do you think, yeah, so I guess, did the story stick the landing for you? I know last time, you know, you were talking about how at the beginning it was so messy, but it was finally starting to come together. And did it, did it stay together in a meaningful way in chapter four? Um, not really. And I think that's one of my biggest complaints about how this game loses its way in the end is that, you know, it doesn't really show us the end of, you know, the arguably like second most important and kind of structurally most important foil character, which is Delita and his pursuits of revolution or the throne. It gets kind of ambiguous by the end. And he's completely absent from from the entire sort of last act of the game. You only hear what happened to him through being recounted from this character um, who is basically attending your funeral. Um, and this this feels so weird. He, he, you know, it sort of concludes on the note that he got what he wanted and and our sort of narrator at this point, Oren, says, you know, I, I th- really think you were right. He was a, a pure of heart man in the end because um, he showed mercy in this one case. And then post-credits, you get a scene where his his queen, Ovelia, realizes she's been used by him and he's used people this whole time, stabs him. He stabs her back and that's the end. <laughs> and so, like, this, I simultaneously hate this because it's such an unsatisfying end to a plot that I was very invested in as being almost a parallel track to the one that your main character, Ramza, is on. And, and part of me feels like this is the game's attempt to be telling a more nuanced and human like character story about how this person has like 
lost so much of their soul uh, on their long slog through war and betrayal and all this and how that leaves a mark on you that you can't just wash off with good intentions once you once you get your reward. And I guess like to me that's difficult because Delita is really set up as sort of the young idealistic person who's like interested not in the the demon stuff but like the world of making his society better and like if if the narrative it wants to tell is that like he loses his way over that course and that's that's a really interesting story i'm 100% invested in that story that's great that speaks to me so much and it's it's a story that i i don't see that commonly in a lot of other final fantasies at least except when reflected through villains where we only meet them at their at their worst when they've when they've sort of turned um and i'm just not convinced that this is like left intentionally ambiguous i think it's just maybe a little bit confused um yeah i mean it's it is kind of funny that you know the whole premise of the game you start with this historian telling you you know, in the legend of this war, everybody knows that Delita emerged as the hero. Everybody knows the story of Delita and yeah. Ramza's been cast aside. And here we're going to show this counter narrative. Um, but yeah. counter narratives only work if you know the narrative it's countering. Right. In this case, it's like everybody knows the story of Delita. It's like, no, we don't. I don't. <laughs> and I'll, and it turns out I could have used a little more of that, actually. Um, so... I, I yeah, I end up being the inverse of that historian where I'm like, no, 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 go. I, I actually would have loved to hear more about the Delita plot. Can you give me more of that? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I like there's a lot that I admire about this game. I like that it sort of sets out trying to tell a little bit of a more grounded story. You know, even in the end, when you're fighting a demon, it's not like a secret surprise demon. It's like the one that you knew you were going to be fighting, you know? Well, it's like, it's sad when that's what the refreshing thing is. <laughs> it's yes. not a surprise demon. Yes. Yeah. It's it's the one that you already knew the name of going in. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, I like that it sort of takes itself seriously in a lot of ways, including with the plot, including mm-hmm. how much it wants you to pay attention and this, in, this like such so deep job and combat system. Um. I hate the clouds in it. I accidentally got him and I was mad about it. I just went to the wrong city. And I was like, no, get out of here. He like runs off to find a fight. And I was like, okay, you go. I'm not that's, following. That's the thing. Like the fact that like cloud shows up and you're just like, no, you got to go. You got to leave. I got to finish this game. Like I'm busy. I'm busy, dude. Like I could not possibly. I didn't oh, mean no. to bring you here. I cannot handle this right now. You got to go, dude. Um, Yeah. So that's that's the mindset we're in by hour 98. So the place where I actually ended with this is I I think this would have really benefited from some of the structural choices that I think later games made sort of building on this foundation like Fire Emblem Fates or even Three Houses where you know those those games are built around the idea that there are multiple people who are active in a particular conflict or at a particular time and that there's worth stories worth following in both of their sides or in all of their cases and sort of builds up what the game's mm, about mm. around those sort of dueling and intertwined narratives. This would have been so good in that format. And like letting like, you play both sides. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. also that means each side only gets 50 hours, <laughs> which would have yeah, been no, I think, better. Yeah, structure that would have been interesting. Yeah. I think that's a, I think that's a good idea. Um, I guess I'm also wondering too, if in this last quarter makes up way more than a quarter of the playtime, uh, yeah. If anything kind of mechanically interesting happened or did anything in the gameplay change, any battles that stood out uh, besides the one that you were stuck on forever? 
you you have a lot more that are about taking out one guy. Like as the plot sort of narrows, you also get this focus on who the key person is in the room at any given time. And that's kind of fun because it it tilts from everything just being this quest to annihilate everything in your path to sort of making more strategically game choices about where to focus your efforts. But the biggest thing that changes is that you just get these new characters out of nowhere that have skills you have never seen before and like have to try to understand. So it's a really weird late game choice to make um, because, you know, some of them will pay off if you if you've figured out how to work the buff system you get a character who is an excellent and aggressive buffer and debuffer. You know, you get a couple of ranged attack sword guys. Like, you get some useful things that build on understandings that you should have acquired by messing around with classes in the earlier chapters. It's just weird to be suddenly receiving those packages in, like, these unique classes that that aren't, like, replicable anywhere else. And also that you don't really have time to build into. Mm. Like, they're so late that you're not... Mm-hmm. multi-classing those people you're just like okay he's this kind of sword guy he's a sword saint like okay yeah and again that is a that is a very you know rpg and especially final fantasy thing where they always throw you some extra party members at the end except in this case you actually put them in your party whereas usually you know those are the characters who just like get dumped yeah no these ones were like oh do you want some guys who are way better than all your current guys it's like <laughs> i guess like not like, re- no i don't but like sure <laughs> It's like if you decided that, like, Amaranth's going to be in your party. I was literally, Dimitri, <laughs> I was literally thinking of Amaranth from Final <laughs> Fantasy IX as we were having this conversation. I almost was like, it was, it's like a, it's like if Amaranth was good. <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> it's the only bad character in that game. I'd like to see um, it pr- told from his perspective, Final Fantasy yes, IX, let's in, get the... in, in a reboot <laughs> or a remake. The Amaranth story or his DLC or something. Not every game needs dual main character narratives, but (laughs) this one I think already is trying to have it and would have really benefited from that sort of (laughs) two view kind of structure. So if you were going to put this, if you're going to rank this as part of your, you know, your 2021 tier list, where would this go? What would you rank it? I have to put it as a B because there's so much that I like here and also it, it just... There, so much is just such a mess. So much mess. <laughs> just so much mess. The walls, the floor. This, it's just, it's just mess. It's mess, mess, mess. <laughs> um, and there's some, there's some really good stuff in there. But like, I, I understand why people really like it and why, for some people, I bet some of this is actually like charming and and it feels silly probably to hear me complain about it. But you know, without the without the nostalgia glasses, like, there's there's some stuff they could work on here. <laughs> so, you know, kind of looking back, this this last arc was supposed to be kind of, you know, a strong end to 2021, you know, playing games mm-hmm. in your wheelhouse and looking at where they kind of rank for you. I, I mean, arguably Undertale, but no real standout hits, I'd say. Yeah, for, yeah, for I, I did anyway. like I did like Undertale. But yeah, we didn't we didn't get anything where. Where I where I could say that stands as like a new favorite, you know what I mean? Which I kind of thought we would. Yeah. So what do you think? What do you think went on here? Have you just already played all of the the exemplary games in the genres that you like, whereas nothing can really surprise you that much anymore? I I don't know. I'm I'm sure that's part of it. You know that like so much of what I 
was kind of weaned on and have come to love are going to be games that stand on the shoulders of foundational work done by some of the titles we're exploring and have had the opportunity to refine that. But I also wonder if part of it is that because I've played more games in these genres or have more have my head more in them, I have more specific or granular preferences. Like part of me wonders if I would have like loved love tactics if it was my first tactics game. Mm-hmm. Like if I was just encountering this and like, you know, meeting these different classes and everything and like, look at this party for the first time. I, I think there's a chance that would have felt really different as opposed to this where I'm like, well, I don't like the menu system, the menu interface. And you know what I mean? Like it, it's very different engaging with things from a genre where you've you've like dug in enough that you have some specificity to your taste. It's much harder, I think, to meet things on their own terms in in those contexts yeah yeah, that that makes sense and so i guess that kind of brings our 2021 games to an end but we did play a lot more games in 2021 not just games for the show i played a lot more than you did because you were playing tactics for so long (laughs) (laughs) just tactics for that end of the year cleanup didn't really happen for you that that happened for me but we'll take a quick break and we come back let's wrap up our 2021 by talking about some of the other games we played And then uh, look forward to what the future of this show is going to look like. Awesome. So we'll be right back. back and we're going to discuss other games that we played in 2021. There were a lot of games that I played that I really enjoyed that I'm not going to talk about here. I kind of tried to group certain games, uh, games that stood out to me in, in themes. I, I know Michelle has taken her own approach to how, how she's going to talk about her games. But for example, you know, I played Metroid Dread this year. I really liked Metroid Dread. If you want to know what I think of Metroid Dread, go back and listen to our Super Metroid episode. Basically, it's that with worse atmosphere, but way better mobility options and boss fights. That's my take that on Metroid okay. Dread. That's <laughs> yeah, okay. I liked it. I don't have much more to say about it than that. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. So yeah, we, we'll we'll alternate here. And I guess the first thing, I, I kind of organized this into like things I learned or questions that uh, I had about 2021. So cool. the, uh, the first thing I, I'm going to say is that I learned that I love Hitman. Oh, yes. So, so let me tell you about Deathloop. Um, uh, okay. <laughs> So, as I mentioned before, I think you brought up Dishonored before, and I mentioned that I was going to play Deathloop, and I did, and I enjoyed it. This is the first arcane game that actually hooked me. I think part mm-hmm. of it is that I just like the general vibe better. I like the general aesthetic. Honestly, it hooked me because it has a rogues gallery <laughs> that it sets up right from the beginning, <laughs> oh which you God. know, you know, if there's a rogues gallery, I will see through. You will play anything with a rogues yeah. gallery. Yeah, and like stuff. almost immediately, it's like, here are these eight people. They're all weirdos. They're called the visionaries. Your goal is to kill all of them. It's like, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna like this game. I'm gonna play that game. Yeah, um, <laughs> and and basically, you know, the premise is to figure out how to kill all these eight visionaries, but how to do so kind of only across, you know, four level. So in a day, a day is split up into time periods. So you have 
think it's like morning, early afternoon, afternoon, night, or something like that. It's, okay. it's four periods. Sure. So basically, you know, you have to kind of poke around the world and figure out how to get some of these people together so you can kind of kill them all in one in one loop, in one run. Right? So do a, they all, do they all, so it's like one day and they all will sort of do the same thing each day in the same time unless you intervene to disrupt them? Yes. And okay. and so as you're going through this time loop, so anytime you get to the end of a full day or you die, you repeat, you go back to the beginning. Okay. And yeah, so it's about you learning more and more about this world. And as you learn about the world, as you learn about these visionaries and their relationship to each other, you figure out ways to get them to kind of manipulate them to be places where you'd like them to be so you can take more than one of them out at a time. And then once you figure out how to do that, you do your one, like the golden loop where you can wipe them all out at once. So yeah, I really love just poking around this world, experimenting with different powers and experimenting with the mobility options. I thought that was really fun. Um... One thing that just really stood out, and again, I didn't play Dishonored. I think this is a power also in Dishonored, and it's a great idea. But let me tell you about this thing called uh, Nexus. So this is one of these slabs you can get, which is a power-up. And this one lets you link enemies together. So basically, so this is in Dishonored, right? I think it might be called Domino or something in Dishonored. Yeah, there's a version of this, yeah. Yeah, so basically you connect enemies together. So if you take out one of the enemies, it will do damage to the others. Or if you kill the one enemy, it will kill all the enemies that are linked. This is so fun. <laughs> this, in this kind of game, like, there's nothing more satisfying than linking, like, 20 enemies, making a noise so they all, f- like, so they're chasing you and you funnel them down this little hallway and then you shoot one of them and he dies and you just hear, like, thump, like, 20 guys go down. <laughs> it is so satisfying. Like, what are the most satisfying moments of, of the year? <laughs> That's great. And, you know, really, you know, the thing I really liked about this was trying to figure out the various ways to take out the targets. That's really fun. But it's really fun until you realize that there's basically just one way to do this, and that the game is actually pretty shockingly linear at the end. Um, So it has all these sandbox elements I really liked. But at the end of it, uh, it really just hit me that I was liking it because it was scratching the Hitman itch from January. Right. Because Hitman 3 was incredible. And, you know, the parts that I really liked about Deathloop were things that unconsciously or not reminded me of what I loved about Hitman and and playing Hitman 3. Because um, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken, Hitman does not have the situation where there's basically one correct way that you have to take guys no. out. It is there. There are many correct ways. There are ways. There are some ways that are very elaborate and much more elaborate than other ways. But if you want to just, like, run up behind a guy and take him out, you can do that. Um, which, I mean, you can do in Deathloop, too, but there, there's not the same range of, of mm-hmm. ways to take them out. And because you have to—in order to get, like, the perfect loop, you need to manipulate them all in certain ways. It really kind of—as the game goes on, as Deathloop goes on, your, your options kind of narrow instead of expand. Whereas as Hitman goes on, your, your options expand. It's kind um, of a puzzle rather than a sandbox at the end is what I'm hearing. Like it's more about loop? figuring out the right. Yeah. Like it's yeah. more about figuring out the right answer that the, the devs kind of have in mind as opposed to like, what yeah, can I and, come up with? And even then, it's not really about figuring it out because the game very clearly guides you towards it. Oh, OK. It's you're really kind of going through a set of steps to get there, which is satisfying, but it is very structured and much more linear than it at first appears, which is, again, hmm. kind of the opposite of what Hitman is. And, you know, I've wanted... I've wanted, like, an art heist game forever. Um, And, you know, Hitman's an assassination game, but it's basically what I want from that kind of game. There is so much variety, so much incentive to experiment. The levels are really cool. There's that murder mystery level where you're in, like, an old English manor. You know, it might not be the best overall package in terms of levels of the Hitman games, but... 
Oh, and I should say, you know, the last level, which is kind of disappointing if this is the end of the Hitman series, at least for a bit. The last level is straight up not a Hitman level. It's annoyingly not a Hitman level. But, you know, given that you can import all the other levels from Hitman 1, 2, and 3, and all the DLCs into this game, and then use all the elements from this game in those levels, it's it's a it's pretty amazing package. Um, I yep. had so much fun with Hitman. I went back to it again and again. The one thing, though, after playing Deathloop that I thought would be interesting is if they could borrow this idea that things you do in one level affects what happens in subsequent levels. I think that would be really, really interesting. Because hmm. right now, how you how you play Hitman, especially when you're done, is you know each level is just its own little puzzle box. Um, and they're okay. all pretty discreet. Um, but if there's a way to kind of thread something through those levels where you can actually affect things in other levels based on what you do in, in previous ones, I think that would be a really interesting thing to experiment with. But yeah, Hitman 3 and Deathloop both stood out this year, but... Uh, Hitman, Hitman more so because it uh, it really is kind of for me the platonic ideal of what a sandbox should be. Yeah, that's cool. I I also can imagine a system where it's like not actually they could manage some of that by borrowing an idea from um, Dishonored, which is that in Dishonored, how sort of loud or quiet your you play in previous things does affect the sort of. Uh, alert levels of of guards and everything in later levels. So if you've really just like hmm. been shooting up the place and not playing stealthy, the game actually responds to that by sort of, you know, people have buffed up security. Like it'll it'll okay. evolve in that way. Yeah. Ideally there'd be more impactful changes like characters well, sure. would appear who yeah, would yeah. otherwise appear. But yeah, yeah, that's that's a you know that's a start to kind of connecting these things for sure. So how about you? Yeah, I mean, I it I like that your first point was about Deathloop, because um, that actually leads right into the first big pattern for me. I did play way fewer games than you did, which I think, you know, just kind of makes sense. Um, but this is the year when I didn't care about any of the big boys. Like when I look at the games that I played this year, clearly missing are all of those like big sort of goatee contender. And there's one um, exception that I'll talk about later if you don't bring it up. But Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, we played It Takes Two together. That's what That's I was going to bring up that, later. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, but, you know, I didn't play Deathloop. Um, I didn't play Guardians of the Galaxy. I didn't play Life is Strange. I haven't played a lot of the big sort of heavyweights that people are talking about in this year's goatees. I'm, I'm kind of curious about Death loop, but honestly, I kind of feel like I've ta- I've got enough of it from talking to you that I'm kind of good. I actually think I'm you'd very- enjoy it. I think it's worth giving it a go. I think you might just like being in the world. Yeah, you know what? That's that's pretty fair. Um, I'm I'm very curious about Returnal. If I can get that on sale at some point, I might play around with it. Um, but other than that, a lot of what I played falls into the roguelike or you know short series of rounds of game a lot of card-based things. Um, and I think that's just reflective of the fact that this year, in so many ways, it felt hard for me to commit to anything that would require more than a few hours of me in terms of like guaranteed time. Um, and I saw this reflected in my practices in other areas as well. There were like TV shows that I didn't start, even though I fully wanted to watch them. I have books that I bought and then have it opened because mm. just the idea of once I start this, I have to finish it feels so overwhelming to me. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, 
And, you know, there are only two of these, like, apart from It Takes Two, the, the sort of two bigger, longer narrative-ish games that I played, which were 13 Sentinels, which is great. And I played Persona 5 Royal, which was basically a replay of Persona 5. They were both over the the holidays and over January, February of last year, right at the start. Um, and I think, you know, I think part of this is impact of like the pandemic going on and on where I just feel like my my focus and my attention um, really needing to be honed on things that aren't like necessarily huge immersive experiences that will like take all of my faculties to to be engaged. A lot of what I played, uh, you know, probably my largest number of hours logged was on either uh, the Switch version of Wingspan or on Slay the Spire, both things that I tend to play while I'm doing something else, listening to a podcast or watching YouTube or watching you play something on on the TV. And I just think that's reflective of sort of the the space in my life that I had for for games over 2021. You know, I, I do think there's some impact on this that that comes from the show that we're that we're doing together as well, because I'm prioritizing being able to play games that we're going to talk about and giving that my attention and thought. And in a way, one of the things that I I didn't expect as an outcome of this show, but I actually appreciate is that I feel like it's made me much more selective with my time in terms of what games I'm going to pick up and actually bother with. I think there was a time when basically anything that was like big and AAA and didn't seem too like butch and was like story driven RPG kind of stuff, I would play by default. Hmm. Um, And now I very easily let so much of that pass me by. I'm much more like grazing and taking just what sounds interesting to me. And so I don't know, this just highlights like my taste shifting a little bit, partially in response to, I think, you know, factors that are going on for me that are not strictly about the games themselves. And and partially, I think, you know, as as like my my palette or my desire for different mechanics is sort of expanding partially as a result of this show. So yeah, I mean, it's it's just a it's just a funny little pattern that in all these goatee conversations, I've listened to so much talk about it. And I'm like, yeah, I didn't play any of those. <laughs> and I'm kind of fine away. with it. I'm kind of fine with it. Like, I'm, I'm like, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> uh, so, okay. So I've got, I've got a question that maybe you can help me get to the bottom of. And I sure. kind of mean this facetiously, but I also kind of mean it kind of seriously. Um, why are games about mental health so twee? Oh Why my God. do they all make me feel like I'm at some kind of hippie drum circle? Why are they so yes. precious? Is there content that doesn't treat you like a five-year-old? Oh my and God. I don't I don't mean this just in terms of games. I mean this just I think like anytime I see anything, I mean, films, I think there there's some exceptions. I think we've moved beyond that. Um mm-hmm. but in a lot of media that is like about mental health, especially stuff that's made recently, it just feels like I, I it's just like the the most cringy type of writing like it's just so gentle and precious yeah i a hundred percent i know exactly where you're coming from i think also i think a lot of tv has moved you know i think of something like bojack horseman which is like an incredibly Mm. dark like view but but good you know view of that and i can't think of anything in games that is like that um i know exactly what you're talking about and i i wonder if part of it is i feel like there is sort of a um 
a lot of the people who are either like millennials or Gen Z who have sort of mainstreamed conversations about mental health have come from a certain particular sort of like soft queer or tender queer mm. sort of I identity that I think is a, a lot of it is about reclaiming softness and vulnerability mm. and gentleness and all of that. And so I think this is, I'm talking out my ass. This is just a hypothesis from what I've seen. I, I think some of this is like an aesthetic knock-on effect of that sort of um, desire to reclaim what is, you know, historically coded as feminine or weak mm. or or whatever. And this is so interesting because I find that off-putting in a lot of cases. And I a lot of people I know who like are interested in mental health stuff and like have mental health, have, you know, like are also an audience for this also kind of feel alienated from this aesthetic but it 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 is it's everywhere i know exactly so, what you're talking about and and so and yeah and so, so i'm going to go through some games that i played this year that kind of dealt with this and and dealt with this in, in different ways and some of them actually worked for me but um so the first one i'll get through it's an older game but i just played it for the first time this year so i won't give it too much weight but uh, you got me to play this because you told me to play this for a while it was night in the woods oh yeah um that is a game about straight-up sociopaths. Um, Angus and B, the two redeemable characters in the whole game, need to get the <laughs> hell out of town. Number two, uh, Chicory. Oh, Did not great. finish it yet. Going through it. Liking it okay. Don't don't feel nearly as strongly as a lot of people do. Like, a lot of people love this game. And, and part of it, I think, is because of this tenderness, this tweeness in terms of how it's handling its issues that I just find alienating. Mm -hmm. The other thing I find alienating about it is that, and this is historically true, Art stresses me out. Oh, I do not yeah. find it relaxing. There is yeah. nothing relaxing about coloring or drawing for me. It's something that I am <laughs> always been bad at. Art classes would make me itchy. Like I think, like I was never good at gym either. But I think like the some the way that some people f like say they feel about gym is how I felt about art class. Because I don't know, even if like I was bad at sports, I was still like having fun. Sure. I was ne I never had fun in art class. I just like <laughs> learned how bad I was, and at least you know if you're bad at gym, you're still like exercising. I never felt like I was improving in art class. So, so this game that's like, oh, like play around, color, color the world. You know, it's black and white, and here's a paintbrush. Do what you want with it. Just stressed me out. Yeah, and like, I want nothing. And like, you see some people who put so much time into like coloring every screen, and it's so beautiful and amazing. And I have no idea how they do that with like a PlayStation controller. <laughs> and it's like, for me, it's either black and white, which I find depressing, or it's like a sloppy monochrome of like green splashed all across the screen, which I also find depressing. So, right. you know, what this game is trying to communicate mechanically backfires on me just because of who I am. You and um, I have such a funny history of like having very stressful playthroughs of games that are meant to be calming and relaxing. Yeah. I love that you have one now. That's great. Um, the other thing that always that kind of cracks me up about Chicory, and again, I do see why people like it, and some of the puzzles so far have been actually pretty cool. But you know, like the integration of the drawing and the coloring that's you know supposed to kind of be relaxing, it just that just does not resonate with me. Um, but yeah, the one thing I find really funny is that you know this is the game. It's described as a game about mental health, and some people I've heard describe it as like it's a game about the toll of being the chosen one, which is like hilarious. Like they state that as though that's a relatable experience. <laughs> You know, when you're chosen and it's hard. Oh, yes. It's so hard being the chosen one. That's like, okay. like the level up of like gifted kid discourse. You know what I mean? That's like one past that. It's like, oh, really? You relate to being the chosen one, having the world's <laughs> problems on your shoulders, really? There's like literally like five people in the world who that might relate to. 
um, um, like, like much are more... you Greta Thunberg? Then you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> like, much more convincing are like, oh, yeah, or like people who are like, yeah, like, you know, I'm an artist and this feels like how I feel like I feel like I can never produce good art and this really, you know, communicated with me on that level. It's okay, okay, like that, that I get. But if you're trying to humble brag by saying like, it really, really related to me because I really feel the strain of being the chosen one. <laughs> get the hell out of here. <laughs> I got some more of these because this is a big theme this year in games I played. I also played Life is Strange True Colors. Ah. Which, again, I and, and this is this is another thing. This is a kind of an opposite reaction to me. Whereas, you know, I would ex- I, I kind of went into Night in the Woods expecting to absolutely love it. Mm-hmm. Um, Life is Strange is one of these games that I cannot believe how much I like these games. It, I say this all the time. There's like a 1% different alternate universe where you hate these games. But for some reason, it's just like threaded this crazy needle with you. Yeah, it's like, I think I respect them because they commit so hard. Like, if you're going to go that hard, <laughs> I, I'm in no matter what you're doing. Like, in the first one, it's just like you're Max. In the first one, you're just in the, you're in your high school, you're in, in the hallway walking down, and she puts on her headphones, and that like, to all of you American girls. And it's like, oh my, you went there. You you did it. And it's like, I, I have to respect that move. And like, I'm in. Yeah, you know, it's just by putting, it's like, oh, you put that saccharine, twee, terrible song in there. It's like, okay, <laughs> you, you got me. Like, you are you believe in this. I believe in you. The thing, though, that is really, that always hooked me with, with Life is Strange. So the first one, and also with this True Colors one, is pulpy mystery in enclosed settings. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's going to get me every time. And I think that's why I could never really get on board with the second one, the road trip one. Because, I don't know, for something, the the the, the hook for me is the one place and and a mystery that and like a pulpy mystery that happens in that place and you get that in the first life is strange and you get that one in true colors as well you know none of the choices in this one felt as big as some of the choices in the first one but there were still some there's still some some really good choices and to go back to kind of the you know this also engages with mental health issues and the th- the point that stood out for me that actually felt real in this game um i think this is the first time in a game that i've heard a mother expressing how much she hates her child and feeling guilty about it. Oh, wow. There's a moment where that happens. Yeah, I, I don't... So, slight spoilers, but not really, because if you've seen any trailers, you know this happens. But you know, like, you go back to this town and your and your brother dies. Mm-hmm. And the reason he dies is because... Um, or part of the reason there's... The mystery is the real reason. Like, you figure out the real reason. But part of what he's doing is he's gone into the mountains with you to look for basically his, not yet his adopted son, but the son of this woman that he's been seeing for a while. And so that's what brings him to the mountains, which is where he he ends up dying. And you then kind of, because you have the power of empathy and you can, you can feel other people's feelings, which is basically shorthand for when it's plot convenient, you can read people's minds. Right. <laughs> but, but yeah, you just get you you feel you go back to this woman and you you know she's talking about how like you're you're reading her mind and she's feeling so guilty because she's talking about how much um you know how important her, like the son is the most important thing in the world to her but she fundamentally hates him now and like she hates all these other people who she feels are involved and it's it's like a, actually a pretty potent moment. I'm sure. Um, that's that's um, some Babadook shit. Yeah, that like felt more real than most things in 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 these games. Yeah. So so props yeah. for that part where she hated her child (laughs) (laughs) no but i get it because that's not you know i think like one of the things that um a lot of uh, mental illness advocate not advocates for mental illness but uh, you know um 
struggle with is that I think, uh, you know, along with being sort of aesthetically twee in some ways, I think there's the the sort of pop culture embrace of mental health as a topic tends to center around um, feelings that are unfortunate, but are palatable or are easy to empathize with and be compassionate towards, you know, people just feeling really sad, people feeling mm-hmm. really worried about what's going on. Um, and, you know, that hasn't fully yielded positive results for some of the effects of mental illness that are like really unpleasant and like hard, actually hard to talk about and like not easy to, you know, show compassion towards and like cause people to act in really like difficult ways. So I, I do appreciate that gesture at like, well, sometimes it's not just like, I'm sad today. It's like, well. <laughs> yeah. And to its credit, tri- Chicory does try to engage with that. Um, but it just doesn't hit in the same way for me mm. in the ways that tr- it engages with that. It's still like because the veneer is still twee. Right. Uh, it doesn't hit. It doesn't hit the same. But it, it. yeah, to be fair, it does. It does kind of try to tackle that. Then the other mental health game I played this year was uh, Psychonauts 2. Definitely the least precious oh, of right. all of those. Right. And again, this it's it's a Tim Schafer plot. It is uh, it is a comedy. It is. This is more like an inside out. You know what I mean? OK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, kind of tonally what it's going for, where it's, you know, it's engaging with these ideas and it's trying to kind of represent them visually, but it's ultimately trying to be a platformer first um, that, you know, that engages with some with some issues around mental health. And sometimes it tries to represent certain, um, like it tries to represent um, an anxiety attack, for example, or a panic attack through some enemies. And, you know, that's that's all well and good. I don't I don't know how well it it, it uh, sticks the landing there, but the thing is, there like the game behind this. Even if it's not sticking the landing on those points, I really, I just love this world so much. I love these characters so much. I love platforming. I love the art style. I mean, there are parts in this game that look like concept art come to life. Like you know how you always see concept art and then you're disappointed because the actual yes. game never looks as good as the concept art. Absolutely not here. There, there's. It's like you see certain things. You're like you can see the concept art in your mind, and it, cool, and it looks that good, and. Like you see some of these levels and realize that most games aren't even trying to be imaginative. <laughs> right. Like you're not even trying. <laughs> so yeah, and and again, I never thought I'd be revisiting the world of Psychonauts, and it was a pleasure to do that. So part of it's probably a little bit of nostalgia, but I I love this game. Yeah, fair enough. Um I guess, you know, the other big game that you and I both played this year that I think for me had a little bit of that, oh, this is so imaginative, I can't believe how much is in this game, like other games aren't really trying, was It Takes Two um, that you and I played together. Yeah, so yeah, let's talk about this. And and that was kind of another mini theme that I realized I need to play more games with people because I played a few games, like I played that with you. I played Streets of Rage 4 with you and my brothers, which is so fun. And I played uh, House of Ashes and Resident Evil 5 online with a friend, and that was so fun. Yep. And yeah, I just need to play more games with people. But I really do think, you know, the highlight of this was it takes two, partially because we were present, you know, in the same location, playing on the couch. And it's a, it's a really fun game. It That just has, that was my equivalent of your Psychonauts experience, where it was just, I cannot believe the variety of things that are in this and like the... The commitment to the art direction is beautiful. Like I really, you know, when at the time playing through it, I was I was impressed and I had a really good time. And I just remember thinking there's so much more game here than I thought there was going to be. Um, but then I, I sort of left it being like solid. 
Um, and then after it won Game of the Year unexpectedly at the Game Awards, um, I went back and watched a, a couple of streamers that I really like stream it and playing it through again. And I actually was even more impressed with it watching it back a second time. And I guess like having, you know, again, some of the breathing room to like really take things in and so watching other people explore nooks and crannies that you and I just didn't just mm-hmm. missed on our on our way through. Um I, I just think there's it's incredible how good everything feels in in mm-hmm. that game. Um, yeah, and, and that's you know, really another, a triumph. Yeah, and you know another game that um, thematically might be trying to deal with some issues and maybe not stick the landing in yep. how it's dealing with them, but yep. it's almost besides the point. Um, and yeah, I, I, I kind of I see where you're coming from there with the um, you know hard to kind of remember the game because we we played it thinking you know we'll just we'll just kind of dabble. Yeah, and that it would be kind of a thing we do over a few weeks, and I think we just like that was our weekend, and that's the all weekend we did. was gone. It, yeah, yeah. Which, we just you know, emerged the, other the side. game, but also it wasn't it wasn't the we didn't really savor it. We just wanted to like we were having a great time just getting through it. Yeah. Um, but it all kind of mushes together, right? And and so yeah, seeing parts you forget because yeah, there's so much there, and there's parts that I completely forgot. And seeing other people play it, it, it really brings back how much fun that was. And I think we did a great job as a team. Honestly, yes, I I agree. It, like we did definitely have to focus up and do like a lot of communicating. I also like I admi- I like that game's commitment to like no, this is you need two people. There's going to be two people. You're mm-hmm. going to depend on each other. This is not a like oh, you're both just platforming through this world. Like everything that those characters do is intermeshed and interdependent on on each other. Um and I yeah, just and thought there's not that like design an easy so character. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's that's the other interesting thing too is like I think it would have been really easy, especially because this game is like about a couple. It's it would be so easy to have like your clear player one and your clear like player mm-hmm. two. Like imagining a couple where it's like to be stereotypical, like she's not that into games, but like occasionally will pick up and like play Mario Party. Like I know tons of couples like that where like mm-hmm. one person is is a really active player and the other might want to join in for something like this. And I kind of thought that's what this was going to be at the start. No, false. <laughs> like <laughs> you are, you are absolutely like this depends on two equal enthusiasts and and you know, kind of comparable skill levels getting getting through it. There's some of the boss encounters are like kind of hard. Mm-hmm. Like no, pleasant. Yeah, I agree. So. There, there are moments. Yeah, we had to retry things, and we have to really be in sync. So it's it's not even you know like we each have to be individually skilled, but there's moments where we have to be skilled together. And it, mm-hmm. yeah, it was it really did make good use of the you know the two player co-op dynamic it made good use of where you actually had to cooperate not yep. just both be good individually on your own i think that's the most fun i've ever had playing a co-op game with you we played a couple things together um but that was that was i think a standout experience for me yeah and i would, I would like to look for for more of those experiences yeah. in the future for sure yeah definitely definitely yeah, one of my big trends and things that I played this year that I sort of saw emerging was sort of about games that are are taking uh, an interesting approach to how you marry um, these really interesting and varied mechanics with with a story layer, which is something that, you know, It Takes Two does in its own way that sort of works. Uh, Final Fantasy Tactics certainly does in its <laughs> own way that sort of works. Um and I actually, in playing through Tactics, thought really frequently about two of the games that I played this year, um, one being Griftlands and the other being Wildermyth. So Griftlands is a, a card-based roguelike, um, but 
where you're working through one of three different character or story campaigns that are happening simultaneously in this sort of finite world. So they're they're all each of the three of them um, has their own like very clear arc of the story. It ends like beginning to end. It probably would take four, three, four hours, something like that. Like a, a nice, a very rich, like one sitting playthrough, you know, if you have some time. Um, but all of them also can go down different paths depending on choices that you make. So you have some variation even within single ones. And basically it, it executes those by having you use two simultaneous decks of, of cards that you're building and doing deck builder stuff with, um, one of which which is about negotiation and like willpower, and one of which which is phys- representing physical combat. And so you simultaneously are having to balance these two different decks, like be in this sort of story world, make character-based choices. Um, and it really, it hits such a good spot for people who want, who for people who are interested in like card-based mechanics or like card-based roguelike things, but want a game where there's an endpoint. Like hmm. there's there's it would be very hard to accidentally spend a hundred hours with this game. You know what I mean? Like it it has all the pleasures of that really compelling loop, but it manages to fit them into this really sensible, really uh well-developed, narratively driven environment where you can actually play and like hit the end and be like, oh, I'm done. Which felt great. It felt so great to like be conclusively done, even though so many games that I love don't have endings like that. Um, I wonder if that's a 2021 symptom as well. We just want to be conclusively done with things. Yeah, or or to like feel like you have the option of like you know if mm-hmm. I if I never picked up Slay the Spire again, I would be like, oh yeah, I played Slay the Spire. I played a ton of that. I wouldn't feel like I didn't finish it. You know, you can walk mm-hmm. away from it at any time. Um, so I just think this was such a nice um, attempt at at bringing some of a like a, a, a stronger and more robust story and character layer into that format, and b creating something that lets you live in the in the deck builder headspace, but also releases you from it at a designated time, which I think is would be very healthy for this genre to adopt, <laughs> as yeah. opposed to Slay the Spire, which will like lock my brain into a play it again mode that I will mm-hmm. never be released from until I delete it off my switch. So, you know, that's, that's one, that's one attempt. Um, the other one, which, which I saw, you know, in the conversation in some people's, you know, top tens of the year lists and everything was this PC game called Wilder Myth that um, is as close as I've ever come, I think, to the feeling of being on like a takeable top role playing like D and D kind of adventure with friends, um, you know more so even than something like Divinity Original Sin. It has sort of this uh, light, um, cartoony aesthetic, but that still be- can be quite beautiful at times. And again, basically, also what- a also a twenty twenty one trend of uh, please emulate friends for me. <laughs> yes. Yeah, honestly, pathetic, but true. Um, That's a great job making me think I'm with friends. That sounds like a game I also want to play. Honestly, I think you would really like Wildermyth. Um, So it's a tactics game where you have, you know, your party of of characters, um, your sword guy, your bow guy, your magic guy. You can have any any number of them. But um, each of the, the different arcs that you can go over, you have 
basically your setup, you can pick from like six campaigns and you can play them all. They're all different. They have different primary enemies, different starting characters, different plot points that happen, like very, very distinct, um, but that all use sort of the same basic class of your warrior, your sort of rogue, your your magician. Um, but they they do such a good job of having some procedurally generated elements that still allow you to read in and feel like you were involved in a real story. Like you, the, the characters are relatively simple to set up. You can, can, you can change their appearance and stuff, but you know, their basic structure that will have some mechanical implications, but also is largely just for you and your experience in your own mind. They'll have basically like uh, an adjective and a noun attached to them. So you might have the uh, snarky leader you might have the um, bookish, uh, uh, bookish romantic. You might have the um, the loner visionary. You know, like you'll have so, and they those will randomly generate, but also you can choose them, and so you end up hmm. getting this party where you have some sense of who these people actually are, and it does affect you know your probability of success in different encounters of, of choosing to, you know, take a stealth approach or whatever. So there's, there's a little bit of light implication for the actual story, but mostly what you, what you get to do is feel in your mind, like you're making role-playing choices for those people. And it can lead down phenomenally different paths, depending on, are you playing a curious character, a greedy character? Like Hmm. there will be, there's sort of a set of, um, sort of random encounters or side quests or like sort of B plots that that you can get. And, you know, if you play all of the campaigns that this thing offers, you will start to see those repeating a little bit because they are, they're, they'll pop up procedurally. But, you know, encountering one of those with a, a greedy character versus a curious character in the lead can lead you down completely different where you can have characters physically transformed by what happens. You can have characters permanently maimed and have, you know, a bunch of their stats change and like lose a leg. So much can happen. And and what's great is a lot of these unfold over, each of these campaigns unfolds over about five acts. And so you actually will follow your characters through their whole life. Like sometimes even your starting characters, one will like die of old age and you'll have other new ones that their kid um, or or other new people hopping on. Um, your characters can fall in love. They can develop rivalries or friendships and you can sort of direct all that stuff. It just, it's so good at capturing in a procedural way that does not feel cold. A, a lot of the hmm. chaos and the different opportunities and the weird combinations of people that make those sorts of campaigns so special. Um, and all that's wrapped around like, a pretty fun little tactics game where you have you'll have encounters where you have to fight on a grid with with the characters that you have and like I said when things go south they can end up they there is permadeath they can be permanently maimed um you know sometimes you have a you know you can have a a bow and arrow character who loses a hand and can no longer use the bow and arrow and has to figure out what they what they are going to be about now and how they're going to be part of this party, you know, in that circumstance. So Wildermyth just does such a such a neat job bringing together so many elements that I've seen other games really struggle to integrate into each other mm-hmm. in a way that feels 
organic and feels alive. Um, and Wildermyth really does. It's cool. It's like really, really neat. If any of this speaks to you, it's it's a very cheap buy on Steam. I say that's a really good pitch. I might try that out this weekend. It is absolutely worth playing around with. Um, the uh, the sort of introductory campaign is only three acts, where it like teaches you how to play the game. You can absolutely get through it in like ninety minutes or two hours and figure mm-hmm. out if you like it. Um, I had a great time. Some of, I still think about a couple of the characters and and their <laughs> their weird personal random arcs in that game. So yeah, it makes me it makes me feel uh, excited about some of the possibilities of um, of the different ways that we can sort of continue bringing together some of these fun mechanical things that I love and some of the storytelling impulses that brought me to games in the first place. So that was a big theme of me for twenty twenty one. Yeah, so I guess for you know the last again I've been talking about games in batches. So for the last batch of games, these are games. That taught me that I need a vacation. <laughs> okay. You know, I, I don't know if I really have a, you know, a game of the year, but I definitely have an experience of the year. Okay. And it's playing these three games back to back to back and feeling just completely renewed by them. And so one of them is a 2020 game that I just played this year and the other is our 2021 games. But this is Astro's Playroom, Bowser's Fury, and Pokemon Snap. Oh, you're like a kid again. This was, so I played these, had a bit of a break in the summer, obviously didn't go anywhere, um, but played these games, you know, didn't go on a real vacation, but sat down and played these games in the summer. And it's as close as I felt to having an actual vacation in ages, like (laughs) legitimately felt refreshed, relaxed after playing them all at the same time, felt like going to Disneyland, like just pure joy of discovery. With with all of them. Bowser's Fury, even though it's, you know, just a small, basically add-on to a game, almost gave me that Mario 64, Mario Odyssey feel of, oh my god, this is something new, like that kind of excitement, that kind of energy to it. That's so, so exciting. Yeah, it's like, yeah, open world Mario really works. Like, imagine an open world that's built to be platformed through. Like, it's just a dream. It's like, you can do basically whatever you want. An open world game where mobility isn't the worst, which is very rare. (laughs) Yeah. Like it gives you like that flow state of driving around in GTA or like swinging in Spider-Man, but with Mario's moveset and level variety, like no offense to New York, but it's super boring in terms of video game levels. Just a city. Yeah. And then, you know, Pokemon Snap was basically all I ever wanted from a Pokemon Snap game. Um, Which is not much, right? It's not much, but it's also a lot. It's no, I like, mean in a good way. Yeah, I don't ask for much, but it's also something that I think only Pokemon Snap can do. Like, just continual surprise and delight of just seeing these stupid Pokemon and their stupid animations. Uh, just being so excited by who's going to peer around the corner or figuring out, you know, how to how to get get to a certain point at a certain uh, at a certain time, get a Pokemon to react in a certain way to get a perfect shot. It just. It just made me feel so good. Like I felt like I was again on on vacation, and I think I needed a vacation. Mm. And uh, and Astro's Playroom as well, which is just a pure pure joy the whole way through. Great use of the controller, like the um, haptic feedback on the PlayStation Five controller. One thing that I was not expecting at all through in Astro's Playroom is that I get it, it is like a love letter to the history of PlayStation, and so you have a bunch of characters like performing 
iconic moments from uh, like the history of PlayStation games, which is just so delightful to find them. And like, you're so incentivized to find all of the little, um, you know, all, all of these, all these little moments where people are acting out these, these games. So fun. Yeah. It just made me so happy. And, and like playing these all together was so essential. So collectively they are my game experience of the year, even though I don't think any of them would be the individual game of the year. It's just playing them all together was a highlight for me of, of this year. That makes so much sense. Um, I think, you know, I was, I also don't know that I have like a clear game of the year because uh, my play patterns were just so weird in 2021. But, you know, you talk about feeling like that, that pure joy, that delight, that surprise, that feeling of discovery. Um, And I felt that exactly two times this year in games. One was uh, the Katamari Damashi soundtrack, which I think I'm on record in that episode as saying it made me feel alive. It made me feel like life still had surprises to show me in a good way. Um, I still feel that. I listen to that soundtrack all the time. And so I just want to shout that out again because it crossed, it steps out of its status in in this show and, and impacted my 2021 in general. The other time that I felt it, the tonal opposite was a little game that I love and I'm not yet finished called Inscription. (laughs) I do not remember the last time a game so surprised me, shocked me, like made me gasp, um, uh, resisted my expectations, turned out to be something smarter and stranger than what I thought I was getting into. And um, I... I just there it's I don't even want to say anything too much about it um, because I feel, you know, I'm almost like nervous for you to play it, for example, because I'm worried it's been overhyped for you. I think like Mm. I had the benefit of going in just hearing people say, oh, yeah, it's good, but like not getting into the details, whereas I think you've probably heard too much about like, oh, it's much more than you think it is at this, you know, so I think you've been, you know, you've been robbed of some of that some of that joy, but I just, in in big and small moments, um, it just has a clarity of vision and a commitment to what it's doing. And just like the first two hours of playing it multiple times every hour, I would like stop and like gasp, like be generally like gagged at something that was happening and, and be like, oh my God, okay, okay. Um, so I'm looking forward to finishing that. I think probably it will end up being, if not the standout game of the year for me, one of them. Um, but yeah, it's sort of an inverse kind of delight. Um, but it's I I think that game is pretty special. Um, and again, very reasonably priced if you would like to go check it out. <laughs> God, what a shill. We're not getting paid for this. <laughs> I want people... So here's something I'm proud of. I spent money on... I paid money for indie games and indie game soundtracks in 2021. Um, I bought music to soundtracks that I listened to a ton. Those creators getting paid. I do not regret any of this. Like if I'm going to buy Persona 5 and Persona 5 Royal, like I damn well better feel good telling people to go buy little Wildermyth and Griftlands and Inscription. Um because they they all they all are great, um, and your ten dollars is probably better felt there than by Atlas. <laughs> so yeah, I'm a shill. 
<laughs> so that's our 2021. And with that, we're going to take a quick break and then come back with some very brief news about the future of the show. We'll be right back. But I'm a creep. I'm a weirdo. What the hell am I doing here? I don't belong here. I don't care. And we're back. So this is gonna take a bit of a a bit of a turn, but you know, Michelle and I have been talking in the process of, you know, trying to figure out okay, what's what's left for Michelle to play? Um, you know, where where do you still feel the gaps are? We came to the conclusion that you your journey might be coming to an end sooner than later. <laughs> Um, not that there's, you know, a bunch of, I think, still phenomenal stuff that you haven't played, but one, uh, you know, life life changes. Yep. Uh, and sometimes you need to prioritize different things in your life at different times. And maybe, you you know, you might not be able to give. And, you know, really, we were going down the list and it's like, okay, there's some, you know, there's some things that still interest you, but a lot of them are very long. Yeah. And uh, it, it might be hard to commit to that time right now. A thing I know that you've been talking about is that, you know, you're you're feeling the general sense like you know the the goal of the experiment has maybe been achieved. Yeah, you know, we have covered a lot of territory over the last 2 years. I really feel like I've I've played broader and in some ways deeper than I I have in any other 2-year period of my life. Um and I do actually feel like I've I've come to like a way better understanding uh and uh sort of knowledge place about about games as as a thing that that I love. Yeah, so I think we are going to be winding down, but we're uh, Michelle's going to kind of go kicking and screaming because we have a few <laughs> we have a few episodes left, and um, next episode I think is going to be a a special episode where Michelle kind of goes not back to where it began, but pretty close where she comes to terms with one of I think probably before we started the show, what you would have said was your favorite game, maybe your favorite game series. Yep, correct. Yep. Mass Effect. Yep. And so now having gone through this journey. Michelle's going to kind of have a Mass Effect airing of grievances in the next episode. <laughs> I have so much to say about this. Um, I, I played through a good part of the Mass Effect Legendary Edition trilogy um, this year. Didn't finish them, which we can talk about. Um, I have so much to say about this. Oh, my God. What a good case for looking at, you know, how much things have changed. And then following that, we're going to do... One more big game, one that Michelle has been wanting to play for a long time, one that is more recent, but that is probably, I would guess, will turn out to be one of the most influential games of all time. Michelle is going to finally play Breath of the Wild. I'm so excited about this. I know I'm going to love this game. And then following Breath of the Wild, we'll finally have a cool down episode where we will reflect on this entire journey and decide once and for all if Michelle is a gamer. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, uh, the final test. The final test. <laughs> Will there be an exam? There might be a quiz. Okay. Okay. I'm ready. <laughs> I'm ready. Um, but yeah, we've really enjoyed doing this, but we do feel like it is it is time for at least, you know, this direction to come to an end. Um, we might still pop up here and there. You know, if Michelle, if if this Metroid Prime remaster remake that has been promised since before oh, yeah. we started the show actually comes out maybe we'll pop up with a metroid prime episode because i know you've wanted to play that but you know the the games to play are just fewer and far between there's stuff that you want to play on your own others other life stuff is uh cutting into our time so we think you know 
we'll go out on a high note with these with these three next episodes, and uh, we really hope you'll join us. Uh, so with that, Michelle, do you have any final thoughts? Yeah, you know what's one of uh, Final Fantasy Tactics' best ideas? Oh my god, we, that was like two hours ago. <laughs> what? You can hit it. You can just whap a guy with your handbag. <laughs> handbag is an official weapon in that game. And wh- how do you use it? Whap! <laughs> Wrap it up. That friggin' rules. All right, thank you for listening. Um, as always, if you've enjoyed this episode, uh, please go ahead and rate and review us on... Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, whatever you're listening to us on. You can find more information about the show at neverwasagamer.com and you can follow us on Twitter at neverwasagamer. Yeah, thank you so, so much for listening and we'll see you next time as we start to wrap it up by giving Michelle a chance to talk about the Mass Effect series because ranting about your faves is an essential part of being a gamer.